Hi, my name is Dan Ariely, and welcome to Arming the Donkeys, a weekly podcast about science. Every week, I will talk to one researcher about one project who will have a chat about what they found and what it means for our lives. In this week's program, Dan talks with Steve Hill, a physician and professor at the Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. Hill is also co-director of the Duke Center for Blood Conservation. He talks with Dan about the overuse of blood transfusions. Uh, you know, I, I, when I was in hospital, I got lots of uh, blood transfusions, and uh, I got uh, hepatitis C in one of those. And you seem to be suggesting that uh, in addition to my hepatitis C, there's all kinds of other things going wrong with the amount of transfusion that we give to people. Well, I think that uh, transfusion is overutilized. And I think that the risk of transfusion are not necessarily apparent immediately, but are present, and that physicians are afraid to avoid transfusion because it's considered to be standard of care. So, so you talk about things like AIDS and hepatitis C, or are there more things that we just don't observe and don't think about as much? Well, actually, it's interesting because AIDS and, hepati- AIDS and hepatitis C are almost eliminated from the blood supply at this point. The, the scary part of infectious risk for blood components is the next thing that we don't know about that we haven't measured, similar to the HIV virus in the 1980s. And there are also other problems with blood product transfusions which uh, uh, are not immediately apparent but are related to the fact that it essentially is a tissue transplant from another human being. And because that blood product is not your own blood, your body has inflammatory reactions to it, which can be harmful to you down the line. So basically, as long as, as close as you try to match things, nevertheless, it's not going to be exact. And we need to think about transfusions as if they're transplants and we could have inflammation, uh, reactions. Uh, what, what, what kind of things could we have for that? Yeah, you could have inflammations, you can, you, inflammation you can have anaphylactic reactions, which you would see immediately, but those also are uncommon. Uh, you can see disease transmission, uh, both of the things that we know about that are very infrequent but still get through the screening process, as well as other viruses or other illnesses such as the scare with the mad cow disease that got transfused uh, or got uh, transmitted through the blood supply in England and in the not-so-distant past. Yeah. yeah. Now, yeah, you said that there's only one study that was a randomized trial study on uh, blood transfusion, and even that study, they couldn't do what they were planning to do. Can you, can you elaborate? Why do you think... So, uh, the way I understand it is that there were two conditions. One was supposed to keep hemoglobin at 10, and one was supposed to be at about 7. And somehow the physicians were not able to do seven. It was too low for them, and they were tempted to do it at, at higher levels, so they couldn't do the experiment. Why do you think it is so hard for physicians not to give blood? Why, why are they giving too much blood? Yeah. The trial you're referring to is the TRIC trial, and that was in the late 90s. And TRIC, not like trick-or-treating. No, T-R-I-C-C. It, uh, it's just the abbreviation of it. And it's been uh, – the P, this trial's been – is ongoing or just completed in a pediatric population. But yes, it's the only real randomized study on a large scale. And and the reason that it was so difficult for the physicians is, again, 
they were allowed to give blood products if they felt that it would be harmful to withhold them in the trial. Because transfusion was standard of care, the, the uh, trial could not refuse to let the doctors give blood if they thought it was essential. So the group that was supposed to only be transfused at a hemoglobin less than 7 actually on average got transfused at a hemoglobin of 8.5, and the group that was supposed to only be transfused below 10, which was two-thirds of the normal hemoglobin, actually got transfused on average at 10.5 grams of hemoglobin. Yeah. So it, the physicians, even though they were part of the study, they couldn't avoid giving blood because it was their impression that it was helpful. And if I think about it, I, if I was a physician, if I were a physician and I would have a patient and they would have a low hemoglobin and they would have a low blood pressure, it would be really tempting to pump them up with those things and, and not taking into account the delayed outcome of uh, increased chance of infection and rejection and, and other things. It's kind of very human in, in many ways to try and do it. But I think what you're saying is that there was never a good trial of that procedure. And if, if we did a, a randomized trial, um, do you think that the FDA would approve uh, this is a regular procedure? I know we're speculating here, but is there, what, what do you think is kind of the, from just observing things, the evidence is, would, would it be kind of flying in, in, passing in flying colors, the FDA approval process? Well, I think that uh, the blood products uh, became standard of care because of use on the battlefield and soldiers that are acutely hemorrhaging. There is no real randomized controlled data on the long-term benefit versus the risk of giving uh, blood bank blood to either the chronically ill or to patients that are not suffering from acute exsanguination. So it's very tempting to give blood because if you're a doctor, a lot of the numbers get better when you give a unit of blood. The hemoglobin goes up, the mixing of sat goes up. It's a great volume expander because it doesn't leave the blood vessels. So the blood pressure goes up and the heart rate comes down. And everything, unless you have an acute reaction to the blood product, everything seems to look better. It's only later that, that you see the complications of infection and the reaction to the inflammatory response generated by the blood against the body that, that come into play. So it's... Uh, it's uh, it's hard not to give it, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah, and if you think about it as a self-control problem, mm-hmm. is that you have something very precise and measured at the moment, and you have something delayed and not measured, uh, you could think about two types of solution from a behavioral economics perspective. One is to create very strict guidelines, but we know it's very hard to create strict guidelines with physicians. The other one is to try and measure the delayed outcomes. Right. So right now, as a physician, you see the immediate outcome of giving blood, you don't see the delayed outcome. What if we had a measure of probability of getting infection? And as you give blood, you will see that uh, amount going up as well. Would that somehow balance? Maybe not perfectly, but help balance a little bit. Well, it's interesting because that data already exists. We know that if you give, if you give blood products, that the chance of you having morbidity and mortality over the long term is increased following heart surgery. We know that. There's no doubt about that right. from, from outcome and database studies. So the question is, how do you make it salient at the moment when you're thinking about that? L- last question. Are there cases where it's clear that people should give? Well, if a patient's exsanguinating and their hemoglobin drops to a critical level, and that would be the best information that, 
that I have available to me means that in a in an otherwise healthy individual that would be a hemoglobin of around 5.7 or if their blood hemoglobin levels drop more than half of their baseline acutely mm -hmm. and the bleeding is not stopped then if you don't give blood in that situation the patient's going to die yeah. couldn't we give them well not really because the most of the oxygen that your tissues used is is bound to hemoglobin the amount of oxygen actually dissolved in the fluid phase of the blood is a very very small component of of the amount of oxygen that's carried in your body so you have to have the hemoglobin to carry adequate oxygen and when it gets down to a critical level then it does start to do damage just from pure so below that have to have it above that not clear about the benefits and a little bit clear about the downside costs and we know that when you give people decisions to make that are very difficult to make we often make uh, the wrong ones so uh, I think you've got me a bit more worried uh, but uh, thank you very much anyway well thank you this has been Arming the Donkeys, a weekly podcast with Dan Ariely of Duke University. To further expand your understanding of dishonesty, irrationality, and other human quirks, go to danarielli.com.